James chapter 1. We began last week spending a few weeks on considering a few questions that our current cultural situation confronts us with and looking for answers in scripture. So last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1, thought about some of the fundamental questions, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And we looked at God's creation of man and woman in the image of God some of the things about uh, male and female, what that means fundamentally for questions of ethics, questions of sexuality, questions of marriage. And we came to the conclusion based upon uh, what God says in his word that he has intended for that marriage covenant uh, to be enjoyed by one man and one woman. All other situations, all other arrangements uh, are sinful Uh, no matter what the combination or numbers come out to. So tonight, uh, what we are doing from the book of James is uh, we are asking a bit of a different question, but in perhaps the same uh, category of questions. We're asking, how about unwanted desires that fall under the category of temptation Uh, What does the Bible say about that? People who have certain struggles, people who have proclivities to certain kinds of sin, perhaps sexually. And uh, what does the Bible say about that? What is the approach that we should take to those kinds of things? So uh, let's read the text tonight and then we'll dive right in. James 1, 13 through 15, God's holy and inspired word. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. The temptation I feel is not my fault. This is a a struggle that I did not choose. Therefore, it uh, cannot be considered my own fault that I am in this mess. You hear these kinds of things uh, in today's world. And it reminded, as I was thinking about this this past week, it reminded me of of something. Last week in the morning service, uh, we talked about the difference between admitting sin and confessing it. When you admit sin, that means you become a defense attorney for your sin. You are willing to acknowledge that it happened, but really what happens is you say, yes, that sin is something I struggle with or that's a reality in my own life, but here's why, uh, here's why I keep falling into this pattern of sin. And that shows us something that we need to learn about ourselves and about our sinful hearts. And that is that we will always want to shift the blame from ourselves onto someone else. 
This is part of what it means to be a fallen human being, to be indwelt by a, a sinful and fallen nature. Been talking a little bit recently about our fallen nature and trying to understand a little bit more about what that means, particularly as it relates to this question of salvation by grace alone and needing to see ourselves fundamentally as fallen people, people who have uh, fallen into sin, who sin, who inherit sin, and then who actually sin in our own lives. Difficult, difficult to wrap our minds around the fallen nature. Difficult to wrap our minds around indwelling sin and putting all of, the, all of the pieces together, particularly for those who are in Christ and the kind of new life that we are said uh, to have once we are made alive by the Spirit. How do we think about the indwelling sin that still lingers in us? For instance, should we focus more on uh, passages in the Bible that say we've been given victory over sin or those passages which speak of the continuing danger of the sinfulness of our hearts. Where should our emphasis be? If we have been freed from the power of sin, like what we say in Q&A 1, he, he frees us, God, Christ frees us not only from uh, the guilt and the penalty of sin, but the tyranny, the power of sin. Does that mean that our indwelling sin has no power at all? Well, no. These are truths that... Uh, really touch on subjects like dominion and identity. Sin no longer reigns over us, but it still lives within us. Sinning is no longer who we are, but often sin is what we do when we live contrary to who we are made to be as redeemed people in the Lord Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God. To be made alive by the Holy Spirit, it's not like uh, signing a peace treaty at the end of a war. It's like signing a declaration of war. That's the beginning of the battle. You are now going to be entrenched in a lifelong battle against your sinful flesh. Before that, you were enslaved to it. There was really no fight to speak of. Being made alive by the Spirit of God, awakened to faith in Christ, is really that signing of the declaration of war. We need to be aware of our fallen nature. We need to be aware of what we are called to do as Christians to be aware how we contend in sinful uh, directions. And that is imperative to grow in our holiness and to grow in grace. Part of that is seeing how much we often want to escape moral culpability, admitting our sin but not confessing it, not actually owning our sin before God and recognizing how much we are driven to hopelessness and to the need to throw ourselves upon Christ. Not only is this a problem within us as individuals, a huge problem in our culture as well, and I think uh, we see that. We make excuses for sin. We, a lot, many times we don't even really know what sin is. We, there, there's no objective standard by which we measure, measure right and wrong anymore. So we often have times even defining what sin is, but we make excuses for it. For it. Things that you know, most people would agree in some sense are wrong, but you hear excuses being made. Oh, I'm just a hot-headed Italian. I'm just an anxious millennial. I'm just a, a gossipy woman making excuses for our sin. This is part of who I am. This is my struggle. This is just my cross to bear. It's ironic, isn't it, that some people will describe their patterns of sin that, well as, uh, that way as their cross to carry. Our culture does this. The church has started to, uh, to, to do it as well, to make excuses for sin. Not has started to do it, has been doing it really for a long time. I read a quote this week 
said, we often think that we are right with God if we bring to him what our fleshly desires can spare. It's an amazing quote, isn't it? We think we are right with God if we bring to him what our fleshly desires can spare. Probably important to think about whether or not we often live in those ways. We impress ourselves with average holiness at best. We convince ourselves that God is a God of cheap grace and the same kind of cheap grace that we have with ourselves. Oh, uh, you know, it's okay that we have this kind of struggle. We never square with the seriousness of sin. We never square with the call to wage war against our sin. We've seen uh, recently the confluence of culture and the church in this pattern of excusing our sins in the area of sexuality, the areas of sexual orientation. The the church has been seen to neglect uh, its purity in sexual sins. We've seen scandal after scandal arising from celebrity pastors and even uh, normal pastors. And uh, as we've seen once again recently, uh, priests in the Roman Catholic Church as well. But also in the notion that people who experience sexual desires, the kinds of desires that historically have been classified as outside the norm, outside the normal pattern of humanity, and saying that people cannot be held accountable for those desires. This is just something that they feel and they can't help it, so there is nothing wrong with that. It is not their fault. This was uh, highlighted this past week, once again, interesting way in our culture. There's a professional baseball player. He plays for a team close by, plays for the professional team on the north side, not the AAA team on the south side. And uh, he had come under fire recently in the last, uh, he made comments all the way back in 2015 uh, saying something about their, the Major League Baseball was having this big initiative to teach people about inclusivism. And he was asked about this, and he said, I'm more than happy to talk with, uh, with people about this kind of thing. He said, personally, for me, because of my personal convictions, I disagree with the homosexual lifestyle, but willing to accept a homosexual as a person, feel free to get to know them, have constructive conversations. Really, a, a very reasonable way to answer the question. Uh, but our culture has undergone a moral revolution in the last couple of decades. And when a moral revolution happens, you know what needs to be present. Three things in order for a moral revolution to take place. That which was celebrated must be condemned. That which was condemned must be celebrated. And the people who do not follow along must be condemned. That which was celebrated must be condemned. That which was condemned must be celebrated. And those who do not follow along themselves must be condemned. Well, this player for the Cubs uh, fell into this wave of being condemned, an object of scorn for uh, saying things this way. And when he was, uh, came up to bat uh, one, of the, one of the nights of this week, the organist of whatever stadium they were in, I think they were in Atlanta, and uh, the organist belted out a song, a song that's famous and has been adopted by the LGBTQ culture as sort of one of their anthem songs, right? the song Born This Way. Uh, which is basically a song that says, if you think that you can point to people and say that this kind, of, this kind of lifestyle is sinful, you're wrong because you don't understand that these people were born this way, they cannot do anything about it, therefore it is not wrong, therefore you cannot judge them. And on and on this kind of talk goes. If you have the desire, live it out. There's nothing wrong with that. And the problem is that uh, many people in the church, that you look at Scripture and you look at the book of Leviticus, look at the book of Romans, 
Uh, you look at uh, various places in Paul's letters where he's talking about sexuality, and, and we understand that there's really not much of a biblical case that can be made as to the, the moral acceptability of these sexual patterns of living. But many people say, yes, but at the same time, people who have these desires within them, seemingly, from the earliest parts of life, maybe they were just born this way. And who are we to say that it is wrong, even if they don't act out these kinds of patterns of living? This was seen recently, and there was a conference. It's called the Revoice Conference. And uh, there were a lot of reformed thinking types that were involved with this conference. And all the, the, this conference is basically all about that, which is basically to say people who are born with uh, who, or who feel same-sex attraction from the earliest parts of their life, they cannot act out those desires, but there's nothing wrong with the fact that they are oriented that way. So tonight we are asking all of these questions. This is the kind of thing that we want to ask. What does the Bible say? about these kinds of things, and what can we learn from uh, what the Bible says about it. What does it say about homosexual desires? Are they sinful? Does the fact that many of these desires seem unwanted means that we should excuse them and not call people to repentance for them? It's these questions we want to consider together. Here's our central idea. The Bible teaches us that we are all sinful in thoughts, words, and deeds. We are culpable even for our unwanted desires. Culpable means we, we, are, we are guilty. We stand guilty. We are culpable even for our unwanted desires if they are fixed on an object which God forbids. This ought to keep us humbly repentant, unwavering in calling sin, sin, and trusting in our Lord's perfect work. The occasion for uh, the, this question, of course, arises from people saying, well, Behavior is one thing, right? Outward actions are one thing. But what about all of those components that come before behavior? Temptation, orientation, desires. These things, you cannot regard them as wrong. People would say if someone has a desire to steal something but does not act on it, they have not sinned per se because that has not been manifested as an outward deed. Take the same line of thinking and apply it to sexual immorality. If a man desires another woman who is not his wife, but does not act on it, people might say that this man has not sinned. Of course, if we know our Bibles, we know that that is not true. That lust is called a sin. If a man has a strong desire towards other men, but does not act on it, people may say he has not sinned there either. That thinking seems fairly reasonable to many people, but it does not accord with what Scripture says. First, uh, let's trace historically the background of uh, the, the, the church conversation on desires and our nature, what is inside of us. We mentioned last week how Augustine, the theologian, the foremost thinker in the history of the church on original sin, he taught against a man called Pelagius, that human beings are born into sin because of the fall in Adam. Adam represented all of us. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. Thus, human beings, we're not blank slates. Right? We don't, we don't, we're not born in sort of a neutral state and we decide, are we going to go in the sinful direction or are we going to go in the righteous direction? Because of the fall of Adam, we were born into a cursed existence. 
And we have a fallen nature that apart from the resurrection, apart from the new creation of God, we will always have that nature. We will always be littered with sin. Even after Christ, as we talked about, even though sin loses its dominion over us, and we can experience much in the way of sanctification, we always carry this fallen nature with us. We carry it with us to the grave. Augustine taught that this fallen nature goes all the way down deep into our very desires. We we have disordered desires and we have sinfulness that goes down deep into each and every one of us. And that we want what God has commanded us not to do. The technical word for this is concupiscence. We have fallen desires. The question then for Augustine is, do these desires, do we count these desires as sinful Are they things for which we need to repent and think about ourselves as sinning when we do these kinds of things? Desire these things that God has forbidden. And what we find through Augustine and all through the line of Reformed thinkers from Calvin on is that not only our evil deeds, but our desires are sinful when they they are fixed upon something which God has forbidden. When the object of our desires is something which God has forbidden, it is wrong and it is a sin. Romans 7, which is kind of a chapter-long exploration of the sin that dwells within us and how sin wells up from inside of us, uh, it, it teaches us, it says in Romans 7, sin which dwells in us and it causes us to do things that perhaps we may not, as Paul says, we may not want to do that. We may not will to do that. But of course, when we sin, uh, we, we, we always do. Whether we sin or not, we're always doing what we desire to do the most. There is some desire there uh, that wins the day that's operating within us. We always follow our greatest desire. Romans 7 In various places, but especially Romans 7 verse 20, says that that, to have desires fixated on something which God has forbidden, is sinful. It is always sinful to desire something which God has forbidden. We see this confirmed in two very important places, other places as well, but we'll we'll mention just two tonight. The first is the Ten Commandments, where the Tenth Commandment says, of course, that it is wrong to covet something. That's a little bit of a commentary back we mentioned just a couple of minutes ago. Someone may think if you want to steal something, but you don't actually act on that desire, that's not wrong. Well, the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not covet. Why is it wrong to covet something? Because it is to desire something which God has not, in his providence, chosen to give to us. Something which God has not given to us, and yet we want that thing. That is the starting point. There are other ways in which coveting is sinful. But ultimately, we are unhappy with the lot that God has chosen for us and that which he has given to us. So what the Tenth Commandment teaches us is that the desire uh, is, is to desire something that God has not given to us is wrong. It is a sin. The question is, can we extrapolate that to other things? And I believe we can. I believe the Bible gives us the, the liberty to extrapolate that to other things, other areas like sexual desire and temptation, areas like lust, because specifically of what Jesus says. Uh, well, the second place we'll mention here is the Sermon on the Mounts that Jesus preached. It is there that the Lord says something that's similar to the ten, Tenth Commandment and that he goes beneath the surface in talking about our sin. It's not just outward action. It goes deeper. 
And there, of course, he says it's not just adultery that is sinful, but it is lust which is sinful. If a man looks at a woman in order to lust for her, then that is sin. But perhaps you say, well, the 10th commandment and what Jesus says is talking about a degree of desire. That is, if you really, really, really want something with an intensity, that is wrong. But you have to really, really want it and burn with a desire and intensity for something. But the Bible doesn't talk about degrees of desire. It talks about objects of desire. The Greek word for desire is the the verb epithumeo, which I know you'll, you'll take home with you. And he'll be talking about that at the dinner table all week. Epithumeo. And that word in, in the scriptures, can, it can be fixated on a good thing or a bad thing. For instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, it is good to desire to see the kingdom. In 1 Timothy 3, it is good to desire, uh, for the men of the church, to desire to be an elder in the church. But when, that has, when it's fixated on something that God has forbidden, it is bad. It is often translated in those instances as lust. So it's a word that can be a positive, it can have a positive sense, it can have a negative sense. And what that shows to us is that it's all about the object of this desire. If we desire something which God forbids, which goes against his law, which goes against the moral code he has given to human beings, it is a sin. Well, you ask, well, what if we cannot necessarily control what we desire? That's a good question. But as fallen people, isn't it true that all of us deal with sinful desires that we do not want and sinful desires that we do not ask for? But the witness of Scripture is that we are still morally accountable for the wrong things that we do, even if we do not choose our particular struggles. We are accounted as sinful because of the sin of our father, Adam, in which we were present in in a covenantal sense, but none of us were actually there with Adam. And sometimes, probably in all of our sinful hearts, we read the story of Genesis and we say, man, you know, it, it seems a little bit unfair that I'm accounted as sinful because of what goes on here, because of Adam's foolishness. We weren't present there. We're still held morally accountable for the fall of man because he is our covenant representative. Listen to the words of Richard Hayes. He says this, The Bible has a sober anthropology, and it does. It teaches us about who we are in a striking way. He says, The Bible has a sober anthropology which rejects the apparently common sense assumption that only freely chosen acts are morally culpable. That is the world in which we live. Only freely chosen acts are morally culpable, and beyond that, we have no objective standard by which to define what, what outward acts are right and wrong. But, he, but Richard Hayes says, apart uh, against this mindset, quite the reverse, in the Bible, the very nature of sin is that it is not freely chosen. All of us stand in the same situation. We inherit sin that is not freely chosen in our own individual lives. We inherited that sinfulness. Many of us struggle with unwanted sins like pride, lust, anger, anxiousness, and a lack of trust. All of these are sin. All of those things. Even if they dwell only inside of us. And all of them furnish us with reminders of how desperately we need to be saved and forgiven. It's a long discussion of desire. In Scripture, we do that for an important reason, 
as we think about James. In James 1, we read, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. James is talking here about a certain kind of temptation. It's important to notice that. It's it's true that one can be tempted from purely external circumstances, only external forces acting upon someone outside of ourselves and morally neutral to our soul. This is the way in which Jesus was tempted Uh, in Hebrews chapter 4. It's a a different verb there, and and it says Jesus was tempted, uh, you'd like us in every way, yet he stayed without sin, right? He stayed free from sin. And that really means more put to the test. Jesus' righteousness was put to the test. And that kind of temptation can happen, but James is talking about something different here. Something that John Owen calls a proposal from within. It's this kind of temptation that God uh, cannot experience, that Christ did not experience, because God never desires anything which he has forbidden. On the other hand, we have a sinful, fallen nature. And temptation arises from within us. And that is what James is talking about here. So verse 14 goes on to say that this type of temptation happens when we are dragged away, when we are enticed by our own desire. It's the noun form of that verb, epithumeo. Epithumes, epithumia. This is that word we have been discussing, which is wrong if it has anything as its object which God has forbidden. And so we see that even to be tempted in this way is a sin. Because fixating, uh, a fixating of our desires on something which God has forbidden is sinful. You say, well, this, is, sounds, this sounds almost unfair now. Now there's kinds of temptations that are sinful to us. But take stock of what we know. That to desire anything which God has forbidden is a sin. Not, and we see that not only in the Tenth Commandment, but Jesus' deeper interpretation of the, second, or the Seventh Commandment. Excuse me. Someone may look at the next verse and say, but wait, verse 15 in James 1. Verse 15 in James 1 says that desire must give birth to sin. So a temptation arising out of the, our own desire is not a sin until we act on it. A lot of people actually read this passage that way. But note carefully what James says here in verse 15. He uses a word for sin, hamartia. And that can be used in two ways. We can talk about a sinful principle, or an overarching kind of principle of sin. Or it can mean an outward sinful deed. Something that is manifested in an outward action. And that is the sense in which James uh, describes it here. So when you read James 1 in concert with Romans 7, you see... These desires that we have that well up within us, if, they, if they're fixated on anything which God has forbidden, take that to the realm of sexuality, a man desiring a woman who is not his wife, a man desiring another man, since that entire pattern of sexuality has been condemned in Scripture, all of that is sin. Read Romans 7 and James 1 together. Those temptations arising within us, They can give birth to an outward manifestation of sin, but the temptation itself is sinful. It is wrong. So that allows us to consider all we've said so far, and we can make some conclusions about what the Bible says morally towards some of these current issues in our world. Consider what we we studied last Sunday evening. We saw that the uh, original creation 
of human beings in the image of God has a lot to say about male-female complementarity, and we begin to see this uh, picture coming together. One scholar puts it this way, the entire fabric of biblical theology proceeds from the assumption that sexual activity is, uh, only, is only to be enjoyed within marriage defined as the covenant union of one man and one woman. All sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is sinful and prohibited by scripture. Let's combine that with what we have talked about in James chapter 1. What does it mean when we desire something, anything, that is outside those bounds which God has placed upon sexual activity? When we desire anything outside of those bounds, the blessing of sexual union within marriage, one would have to conclude that it is wrong. It is wrong to desire something which God forbids, even if it is something that we do not act on and see manifested into outward action. It is still wrong. This is why it is sinful for a man to desire a woman who is not his wife. But what does this mean? In that there is a component of, of uh, or sorry, what this does mean is that there is a component of heterosexual desire that can be glorifying to God. There is a certain kind of heterosexual desire that can be glorifying to God because it can find its proper end in the covenant of marriage as defined between one man and one woman. So there's a component of that, although there are plenty of heterosexual inward desires that are sinful. There's a component of it that can be good and right and glorifying to God when it's located within the proper context of God's gift of marriage. Same-sex desire simply cannot ever be glorifying to God because it never is in line with the pattern that is laid down for us in Scripture. And same-sex relationships are not included in God's pattern for marriage. Thus, we would conclude that in the question of an orientation that someone has, proclivities towards a certain pattern of behavior, if by orientation we mean that enduring pattern of sexual desire for those of the same sex, that is inherently sinful. But some may say, but that is to, that is to say that they are held accountable for that which they cannot control. But the answer to that lies in how we view human nature. Are we not morally accountable for our own proclivities and struggles? All the things that dwell within us, if they're fixated upon something which God forbids, which all of us do within ourselves at one point or another. We are sinful. We are morally culpable for that, even if we feel like these proclivities are unwanted or asked for. Problem with pride. Problem with anger. This is what it means to be fallen. And we groan to be delivered from this body of death. A man may have an enduring pattern of desire for women whom, to whom he is not married, and that is sinful. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. And this forces us to return to what we considered earlier tonight. Is human nature a blank slate or are we fundamentally flawed? If we are fundamentally flawed, then we are sinful not only in our outward actions and what we freely choose, but also in our nature. So in terms of a homosexual orientation or a same-sex orientation, as Denny Burke says, quote, our moral assessment of it 
same-sex orientation, does not depend upon it being chosen. All sinful desire springs spontaneously from our nature, but its unchosenness does not make it any less sinful. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Ultimately, this reminds us that we cannot have a superficial understanding of sin, the sin that lies so deep within us. So we think about our witness and our ministry in the world. How do these convictions shape what we are to do? First, we must be committed to these biblical teachings, especially as we call those who may be LGBTQ to Christ, which is ultimately what we want and what we must hope for and what we must pray for. All sinners are in need of repentance, faith, and transformation. Everyone. Everyone on the earth. God and salvation are not window dressing on our lives. When Christ is Lord, when Christ is King of a life, then transformation takes place. And it begins with repentance and faith. Secondly, we must encourage those who struggle with same-sex temptation or same-sex desires to look to Christ. Christians who may struggle with this. We call them to repent of the sin that continues to entangle them and to trust in the Lord's forgiveness and to trust in the Lord's sanctification by His grace. These desires may be unwanted and in some ways beyond their immediate control, but they are still accountable for them. Think about this with the, the, the Revoice Conference. The reason this Revoice Conference, if you want to check it out later, you can. Uh, the reason it was so troubling to many people who come from a more conservative biblical standpoint is because this is where it fell so short. It was not calling people who have this unwanted pattern of desire. It was not calling them to repentance for that and seeing it as a sinful pattern within them as fallen creatures. Thirdly, We must call heterosexuals to examine their own hearts with the same fervor. To desire anything which God has forbidden is sinful, and that demands repentance. The most most any of us will ever be able to exercise that kind of healthy desire upon is that person to whom we're currently married. Anything other than that is wrong. We do not get a free pass in our thought life merely because we are heterosexual. So then finally, as we close, we consider the grace and the majesty of Jesus. Depressing to hear a lot of this and to think about our fallen nature and to be hit over the head with it time and time and time again. But certainly it robs us of confidence in ourselves. But in all of it, what do we need to do? We need to look to Christ. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sin. We're talking about those kinds of temptations, as we mentioned, that are purely external, right? Jesus never had a temptation well up from inside of him. He never had a desire that was fixated upon something which God forbids. Jesus was tried and he was put to the test, but within his heart was never an unholy desire, Upon, any, upon anything, Jesus, or as James says, God is not able to sin. And thus, Jesus being God, he was at the same time really tempted by external forces. There was actual temptation there. And yet, his divine nature made it impossible for him to sin. And some people may say, well, that just means that you know, Jesus didn't feel the full force of temptation. Because his divine nature disallowed him from sinning. Well... 
His temptation, his experience of temptation was much different than our own, but not in the way that you might think. Because think about it this way. When we give in to temptation, that means we do not feel the full force of that temptation. Jesus had dealt with temptation and had to see it through to the very end. That means that he experienced the the maximum amount and power of the temptation which he withstood and to which he said no. He never Never gave in to temptation or desired what was wrong. When we think about Jesus' inability to sin and his withstanding temptation, what it really does is it evokes worship. Particularly when we think about our own sinfulness, particularly when we think about the the own ways in which temptation wells up from inside of us. Amazing thing to think about. All of the areas of life. We we focused in on uh, sexuality and orientation tonight, but all of the ways in which our sin wells up inside of us, and that creates an opportunity to sin once again. There's this snowballing effect of sin because of our fallen nature. How desperately we need a Savior. And what it really does, when we think about Jesus' inability to sin, the fact that he withstood temptation all of his life, what it really does is it evokes worship. Worship of the God-man. Worship of our Savior. Listen to the way one scholar puts it. Jesus always looked at every woman and every man in a way that was without sin. He never experienced an untoward sexual desire for any person. He was able to sit with the woman at the well, for example, without the turmoil of disordered lusts that he ought not be feeling. No bodily need ever trumped his desire to do his father's will. He just saw her, loved her, and ministered to her without all of the sinful wrestlings that we have to reckon with. He was perfect. He always got it right in his heart and in his deeds. And we pray that prayer, that prayer of confession. We have sinned against you, Father, in thought and in word and in deed. Jesus always glorified God in thought and in word, and in deed. Aren't you thankful for the active obedience of Christ in the face of your sin, in the face of your sinfulness, in the face of all that wells up inside of you that is not glorifying to God? When you think about that, let it keep you humbly repentant. Let it keep you always distrusting yourself and always looking to your Savior in faith, knowing that He cleanses you, knowing that his life speaks for you. It is your righteousness. It's how God accounts you as perfectly righteous before him. Perfect in thought, word, and deed. That is a wonderful Savior. And we thank God for the great gospel which he proclaims to us in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We pray that you would impress these truths upon our hearts and that we would live for you always. Father, whatever our proclivities to sin are, whatever the patterns of of sinfulness in our own hearts that need, need to be weeded out, Father, may each of us repent of those this week. Truly repent, not admitting. Father, repenting, owning our sin, running to Christ. We look forward to gathering around the table, Lord willing, next Sunday. And Father, may it glorify you and may it honor you. We pray all these things. In Christ's name, amen.